So when I was in high school, there were, there were a number of us that were really, really close. We were a close group of guys. There were about five or six of us in this group. Um, we, we did everything together. And in fact, it's been a real blessing to me, actually, through the years since high school, many, many moons ago. Um, we, we've actually continued to play a presence in each other's lives, even though, even though I went to high school in Texas, and we've all spread out across, across the nation. One of them's in Seattle, one of them's Miami, the other one's in Chicago, one's still in Texas, I'm here. Um, even though we, we've spread out across the nation, we still regularly invest in each other's lives and, and get together, and we do big guy get-togethers and things like that. Um, in fact, one of them is actually going to be visiting us soon, here in the next few weeks. So, so I'm looking forward to that. But we, we, did, we did a ton of things together when we were in high school. One of the things that we did is we actually, um, so, so high school, you know, there's always the requirement to study a foreign language. So, um, so, so at my high school, we only had two options. It was either Spanish or Latin. So we all picked Latin because you don't have to speak Latin, right? I mean, when are you ever going to meet an ancient Roman and actually have to have a conversation? So, so we figured Spanish would be way more difficult to do. So, so we did Latin together. Um, now, the school hadn't offered Latin for very long, so we were kind of at the forefront of the program. So we did our, we did our first two years of Latin together, and then we got to the third year, and we were actually the first class at my high school to go through a third year of Latin. They're like, wow, these guys really like a beating. Um, and, uh, and because, because it was our third year, uh, things, were, th- things weren't put together quite as well. Um, our teacher was amazing, just a phenomenal woman. Um, and she bent over backwards to kind of make it work for us because all, all, all of us, we were going to take the class together, but three of us couldn't actually make it into the class because we had other schedule requirements. So, so out of the, the generosity of this teacher, she actually allowed those three guys to do it during their study hour. So, so she would give them translation work. They would go to their study hour at the library, and they would just work on translation. And, and the grade for my Latin three class was based entirely upon translation work. There were no tests. There was no exams. There was nothing else. So it was just translation work. So, so I went to the actual class where my teacher was at and sat through that for, uh, for, for the year while my buddies went to the library and did kind of what you would expect teenage boys to do in the library when they're entirely unattended. Um, but I, I still pride myself in thinking, I surely must know Latin better than they, than they know Latin all these years later. Maybe, probably not, actually. But um, so, so they went, and they, they did what they do. Um, and at this point in time, mind you, we, didn't, we weren't doing work on laptops at this point. We didn't have laptops. Um, so the translation work was entirely handwritten, right? And, well... Um, it, if you look at even at my handwriting today, good luck attempting to read that. So, so my buddies quickly realized there was no chance, there was no chance this teacher, this poor teacher was ever going to be able to read their handwriting as they were translating this Latin work. And so they took full advantage and their handwriting continued to diminish throughout the course of the year as they told stories, as they wrote stories about puppy dogs and squirrels and the rangers and just complete random things, recognizing there was no way she would ever be able to actually grade their work. Not a chance. So the end of the year came around. The end of the year came around. Um, All three of those guys had done absolutely zero actual translation work. They did not even look at Jason and the Argonauts throughout the course of the year, let alone translate it. Um, They had done zero work. 
And out of this teacher's grace, and I don't know what point she realized she could not give them a genuine grade, but out of her grace, she actually graded them very, I mean, she graded them very well. They actually walked away with good grades from the class. And again, they certainly did not deserve it. The interesting thing was, even though they had all done the same amount of work, which again is zero, and all deserved to fail, she gave them all different grades. Of these three guys, one got an A plus, one got, I think it was an A minus, and then one got a B plus, all based on doing exactly the same work. As best as we can tell all of these years later, as best as we can tell, she looked at those three guys and correctly uh, assessed who would probably do best in the class and then just kind of arbitrarily handed out grades from there on out. The A-plus student, the A-minus student, and the B-plus student. Which, of course, none of them could be mad because none of them had actually done the work, so it was incredibly gracious on their part. And even, and even still, all of these years later, when we get together, we like to laugh about which, one, which guy was the A-plus student and who wasn't. It's always a fun thing. Now, this is a funny example. This is a funny example of grades kind of arbitrarily being handed out, right? I mean, she, she looked at us. She kind of, she knew some of our background. She knew who was probably going to get the better grades, and so, so, so she handed out the grades. Now, most of us have probably faced some time in our life where people have looked at us and assumed, based on how you look, based on who you are, this is probably what I should expect from you. And most of us have probably faced some form of discrimination at some point that's probably not so funny. That's probably not so funny. Certainly in our culture today, our culture is very keen to talk about discrimination, right? It comes up regularly. Um, All you have to do is turn on the news, turn on TV, turn on a sitcom, and you'll hear all about discrimination. But at the same time, as the world evaluates discrimination and how we discriminate against one another— The world does so without God's word. The world does so from an atheistic standpoint, not recognizing who our ultimate authority is, not recognizing even where our source of value actually comes from. We live in a world that is acutely aware of discrimination, but lacks complete awareness of who our God and King is. So James's message for us this morning is so incredibly crucial because James speaks into this topic. James speaks into what genuine discrimination is and how we as Christians can fight against discrimination. So we're continuing on with our series this morning then on faith 24-7 and what it means, what it means to be living out our faith as we, as we continue to look through the book of James. James shows us what faith looks like in various circumstances. So today specifically, we're looking at a faith that loves We're looking at a faith that loves. And and the faith that loves is not given over to favoritism or partiality, but rather enjoys benevolence and mercy. The faith that loves is one that shows benevolence and mercy. So we'll be breaking the talk down into two major points this morning. We'll be looking at the failures of favoritism and the beauty of benevolence. The failures of favoritism and the beauty of benevolence. Our passage this morning is James chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. If you have your Bibles, please open up. Again, that's James chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. I'm going to read our passage. My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. 
Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourselves. You are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. And if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Dear Father, Lord, I thank you so much for this morning. I thank you for the ways that you have blessed us, God, that you continue to show your goodness and your grace and your mercy in our lives. God, you are so glorious. Father, I pray that you would be with us this morning, that your spirit would be working in our hearts as we listen to the word, to, to your word, God, jumping off the pages, Father, that you would conform us, God, that you would convict us of our sinfulness, Lord, and of the beauty and majesty of your Son. God, please work mightily in this morning. God, I pray that you would, uh, that you would superintend my words, Father, and that, uh, and that your word would just be powerful. God, we pray all this through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. The failings of favoritism. We, we have been working our way through the book of James, then looking at how faith evidences itself in the life of the believer. And today we get to launch into chapter 2. Now, James, James chapter 1 ended with a description of what pure and undefiled and genuine religion looked like, genuine Christian faith. And now James follows that up in chapter 2 with a, with a fuller description of what that faith, of what that pure religion looks like when it's actually lived out. So we get to, we get, we get to work our way through that this morning then. So James begins with this command, my brothers and sisters. Right? He, he's speaking to believers. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. James is commanding that favoritism should have nothing to do in our lives with our dealing with others. But what, what does he mean by the word favoritism? What is it he's talking about here? Favoritism actually comes from two, it's actually two Greek words that have been pushed together that literally, literally translated would say receiving face receiving face. And it basically carries this kind of meeting of uh, treating someone according to external appearances, treating, treating someone according to superficialities, discriminating based on superficial details, right? This is what James is talking about. James is not saying that we can't have favorites. He's not saying we can't have favorites. It's totally fine to have favorites. I, I am married, I have a wife, and she is my favorite. 
And that, that, that is totally fine and it's totally righteous. Um, men, if you are married, if you are married, then you are called to treat your, your wife different from every other woman, right? Right? There, there's a right way to treat your wife. And that's actually commanded by God, right? Children, children are called to obey their parents. Um, we're called to, we're okay, we're, we're called to, uh, to follow our bosses, um, right? Husbands and wives are commanded to act different ways. So based on our relationship, based on the relationship that we enjoy one another, that comes with different expectations and that comes with different responsibilities. And that's a good thing. God actually commands that. There's actually an expectation for that. Me taking my wife on a date is a good thing. Me taking your wife on a date, that's a bad thing, right? There are different expectations given our relationship. So then James isn't saying that it's bad to have favorites. Having favorites is entirely fine. What he is saying is that Christians must not discriminate against others. We cannot discriminate against others. The Christian should not be swayed by another person's finances or their race or their nationality or their social class or their education or their, their personal style and dress or potentially the lack of style and dress. Those aren't things that we should actually, those aren't things that should cause discrimination in our hearts. You know, I used to work in a residential care facility with at-risk teenagers. And, uh, and one of the things, so, so we actually lived there on the facility with these teenagers. Um, we got half a day off a week, but otherwise we were there with them all the time. Um, so on Sundays, on Sundays, we would take them out to the community and take them to church. And there were three teenagers in particular that used to like to accompany me. And we, we would go to just a really solid church, um, great preaching of the word and such. Um, the boys didn't really fit. They didn't really look like your average congregant at the church. But the boys were happy to go there. They were okay with it. And um, I, I still question some of their motivations, but they like to sit on the front row. Um, I think there might have been a slight bit of rebellion in that, like we're going to make a show of ourselves, maybe. But still, they would come in, they would sit down, and, and they generally listened to the service. And it was, it was an amazing thing. I, I loved it. I loved being able to, to bring them on Sundays. It seemed like we'd be able to have good conversation afterwards about what, what we had spoken about and about God's Word, and it was just a rich time. Um, so, so maybe a year or so later after I had started bringing them, um, and at this point they were no longer in attendance, uh, about a year or so later I spoke to the senior pastor. I just had some questions and conversation with him, um, and he remembered me from that. And he actually brought that up, and he brought that up, and he mentioned, yeah, that, that was really distracting when you used to do that and bring them down into the front, and it really distracted the other congregants and such. Now, he didn't ask me to stop doing it, he, uh, and I'm very thankful that he had never called us out, he had never said anything to the boys or anything like that, because I think that would have been hard, even though that might have been a slight bit of the motivation anyways, I think that would have been hard for them to have heard that reality. But, but I mean, that, that's an example, right? They look different. They look different than the other congregants that were there, and so they felt like that was a bit of a distraction. Partiality. Showing partiality makes people feel partial. Showing partiality makes people feel partial. It does damage to them emotionally, and it makes them feel subhuman. Like they're not quite living up. They're not quite matching those expectations. James goes on to provide an illustration, a description of what this looks like in the early church. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy, clothes, in filthy old clothes also comes in. 
If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you. Let's say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So here, James is painting a picture of economic and class discrimination taking place in the gathered assembly of believers. The rich man is given priority while the poor man is treated as a second-class citizen. The rich man is treated with honor while the poor man is treated with shame. The rich man is treated, is, is welcomed. He's made to feel a, a, a place there, like he belongs, while the poor man is made to feel like an alien, like an outsider. Can you imagine the whispers and the stares as the poor man in shabby clothing walks in? Can you imagine the kinds of thoughts that the people are having? What's he doing here? He doesn't belong. Let's sit over there so we don't have to be too close to him, so we don't have to smell him. Well, whatever you do, don't let the children sit close to him. Maybe you haven't seen this exact situation, but maybe you've heard those kinds of sentiments before. Maybe you've thought those kinds of things before. And of course, we try to justify ourselves. Well, you don't really know that person and what they've done. They're, they're a sinner, or even better yet, they distract us from God. They distract us from worshiping. But, I mean, the obvious question of that then is, how could someone who's made in the image of God distract us from God? That doesn't make any sense. At the end of the day, if I'm distracted from God, that's about my sin, not about theirs, right? Unless, of course, it's my children that's distracting me, and then that, that's their sin. So, so why? why? Why then? Why is discrimination so particularly heinous amongst God's people? Why is this such a horrible, a horrific thing? Why is it so wicked? James gives us three reasons. He lays out three reasons for us in this passage. The first is that it's contrary to God's nature. It's contrary to God's nature. In verses 5 through 6a, he writes, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. So favoritism is not how God acts. It's not what he's like. Our God is not a God of favoritism. How, how does he act? Well, I mean, think about us, right? Why? Why do we show favoritism? Why do we discriminate? Well, we often do because we, we want something from someone, right? We feel like we have some needs. So, so that, that wealthier person, or that famous person, or that person with all those talents, we want to put ourselves in proximity with them because we feel like we have something to get from them. Like they'll meet this need in our life. God doesn't do that, though, does he? Because God has no need. God has absolutely no needs. God doesn't need to show preferential treatment. He has no desire to. He has no needs at all. It's not as though God is sitting up in heaven thinking, man, she's really smart. She's really smart. If only I had someone like that on my team, right? Or, or he doesn't look at the, the guy and think, wow, he is so socially capable and so popular, people loved him. Man, if he was, if he was in our church, then, then we'd, be, we'd be pushing back the gates of hell. The kingdom would be advancing, right? That's, that's not the way God views us. 
God doesn't need us. He doesn't need us. Acts chapter 17, verse 25 says, God is not served by human hands as though he needs anything. We have nothing to offer to God. Anything that we have has been given to us from above, right? It's from him. He is the creator and maker of all things. He is the one who binds all things together. Everything is from him and through him and to him. We have nothing to add. He has no need of us. He doesn't need anything. God chooses to use us in powerful and amazing ways because he loves us for our delight and for his glory. He blesses us by allowing us to be at work in his kingdom. Notice here that James does not say that God only uses the poor either. He's not saying he only likes the poor. God is not discriminating against rich people, right? He's not discriminating against rich people. No, the church is a leveling community where all can come in, where all are invited. You know, we, we just celebrated the Lord's Supper together. We just celebrated communion together. That, that's, part of, that's part of the picture behind communion. We rejoice in the union that we share in Christ that unites us together as a community in a level playing field where we can all gather together, where there is no discrimination, where there is no social class, where there is no race, where there is no partiality or bias. We are able to come together and unite over Christ, Right? That's what we've just celebrated in communion. Uh, So what we're saying then, if that's not what God's saying, what is he saying? What we're saying then is that economics, economics, finances, is not a hindrance to God. In fact, he delights to use the poor, the downcast, the broken, the marginalized of this world. He delights to use those sorts. It is often the broken who are best positioned to give testimony to God's greatness. James's better known brother, maybe, maybe you've heard of him, Jesus. He said, he said something like that. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, in Matthew chapter 5. And then Paul said similarly, God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in this world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 27 to 31. Right? God delights to use the broken and the frail because it shows his glory and it shows his might. It highlights his magnificence and his sufficiency. Right? If you have a sports team, which brings more glory to a coach? Which brings more glory to a coach? Is a coach more glorified? Is he, is he made more, um, is his talent made more manifest by taking an amazing group of players, uh, taking an amazing team who's already come in, is already unified, and has all these amazing talents, and then taking them to the Super Bowl when everyone knew they would end up there regardless of the coach? Or does the coach receive more glory by taking the team who had no chance? The team of people who, who they didn't have the talent, they didn't have the strength, they didn't have the capabilities. No one expected them. They were the underdog team and taking them to the Super Bowl. Which one, which one gets more glory, Coach A or Coach B? Which one gets the Disney movie a few years later, right? 
Which one are they going to make a movie about? Well, it's obviously the coach of the underdog team. That's who gets the glory. That is the way our God works. God delights to use us who are frail and broken and needy. Not only that, the second reason that favoritism is so wrong is because it flies in the face of common sense. It flies in the face of common sense. James goes on to write, Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? Here James provides almost a quid pro quo argument that it just doesn't even make sense to favor the rich and the wealthy, the ones who are doing such damage to others, the ones who are profaning the name of Christ. Now, this might seem counterintuitive because, again, again, the reason we often show favoritism is because we want something from someone, right? That's often why we do it. We expect to profit somehow from their wealth and fame. And let's be honest, sometimes we do. Sometimes we do. There, there are certainly churches that profit from catering to the wealthy, right? They, they, they profit financially and according to the world's eyes, and they're able to do bigger things and et cetera, et cetera, Right? But God wants so much more for us than that. He's not looking for material, worldly blessings. He wants to bless us in ways that are so much more extravagant. He has something better for us than that. We don't need to show favoritism. It doesn't make sense. And even in, and even in the worldly sense, even in the worldly sense, showing favoritism will often come back to bite you. It will. How, how often are we in the situation where we find ourselves trying really hard to impress a fairly unimpressive group of people, right? How much time and energy goes into that? Teenagers in your schools, how often do you focus your energies upon trying to impress a certain group of individuals that doesn't matter, does it really matter? Um, at work, you find yourselves trying to impress certain groups. Maybe, maybe it's in your social lives. Maybe it's whatever you do. How much of our times and energy goes into that? God says that doesn't make sense. You don't need what they have to offer. I've got what you need. Come to me. Number three, it's contrary to the great commandment. The third reason favoritism is so wrong is because it runs contrary to what Christ has told us in uh, looking at verses 8 through 11. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, then you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you still murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Discrimination is a clear violation of Christ's command to love our neighbors as ourselves in Matthew 22. It flies in the face of, and it's diametrically opposed to the love that we are called to. Discrimination and favoritism is hatred. It's hatred. And the violation of the law is breaking of the entirety of the law. There is no room in James for, well, I I broke this law, but look look at everything I did right. I kept all these other laws, right? That's good. There's no room for that thought. If If you've broken the one element, you have broken the entirety 
of the law. Be like me, dropping a glass on the floor, picking it up. You know, I lost a chunk of it, but it's still good. I only broke a piece of the glass, right? I can keep using it. And, you know, you keep drinking from it. Occasionally you get a little bloodied, but it, but, but it still works. It's still holding water. No, that, that's when my wife rightfully comes along and throws the whole thing in the trash and says, no, you have broken the whole glass. You didn't just break a piece. You broke the entirety of the glass. It is not functional anymore. We cannot continue to cut our lip on a glass we're drinking from. If you break the portion of the law, you have broken the entirety of it. James goes on to give the consequences, the consequences of what it looks like then to break the law. In verses 12 to 13, He says, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. The consequences of such action are judgment without mercy. Judgment without mercy. And I just want to remind you that you have broken the law, right? Which means you are all guilty of breaking the whole law. The consequences is judgment without mercy. Discrimination Discrimination leads to condemnation. That's the severity of the failings of favoritism. It runs contrary to God's nature. It runs contrary even to common sense, right? It is a violation of God's law for his people, and it merits condemnation. It is a violation against the very image of God, and therefore it's blasphemy. It's blasphemy against him. Now, this is a scathing rebuke of the early church, but it's not just for them. It's for us today. But James doesn't end here. He also provides a glimpse into the beauty of benevolence, the beauty of benevolence. Looking at the last portion of 13, mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. You see, some of you might be sitting there thinking, I I haven't discriminated. I haven't shown favoritism. I'm not guilty of judging others or making them less valuable with my mind or actions. But notice here that the opposite of discrimination isn't the absence. It's not the opposite. It's not the absence of discrimination. The opposite of judgment isn't indifference. The opposite of favoritism, rather, is showing mercy. Showing mercy. And this is what the believing community is called to. We are called to be those who give mercy. We're called to be mercy givers. We are called, brothers and sisters, to a demonstration of the mercy and benevolence towards others that we also have been shown. Regardless of skin, regardless of dress, regardless of finances, regardless of education, regardless of profession, and in fact, even regardless of whether or not they are our enemy, we are called to show them mercy. Remember, James's use previously of Matthew 22, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, when the Pharisees heard this, they rightfully challenged, but wait, who's your neighbor? Because they were trying to limit it. If you can limit it, it makes it way more doable, right? If my neighbor is just this one person who lives geographically next door to me, I might be able to do that. I mean, realistically, no, I still couldn't. But, but I could at least delude myself into thinking maybe I could. Um, But Jesus answers, Jesus answers, who is your neighbor in Luke 10? And he answers with this parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan. The parable of the Good Samaritan. Many of you probably know it. The parable of the Good Samaritan. Jewish man is walking down the road. He is mugged. they, They take his money. They leave him half dead on the side of the road, right? 
And then, and then a priest is walking down the road, sees him, and, and wait for it, because this is where you would think in the Jewish mindset that the priest would go over and he would help him. But instead, he shifts away and walks past on the opposite side of the road. And, and, then, and then a Levite, also a religious figure, he did the exact same thing in order to avoid being touched by the bloodied individual. He walks by on the other side of the road. But then the least likely candidate, the enemy of the Jew, the Samaritan, walking down the road, he sees him lying there and he shows mercy. He shows mercy. He, he defiles himself religiously by taking upon himself this bloodied individual. He, he uses his own resources, his money. He spends his time in an effort to make sure this broken individual is taken care of. Jesus asks, who then is my neighbor? And the lawyer rightfully responds, it is the one who showed mercy. We are called to be mercy givers. We are not called to indifference. We are called to be radically, sacrificially mercy givers to all people. That, that is love regardless. That is the kind of stuff that is reflective of our great and mighty King. That is the kind of action that is representative of what Jesus has done for us. Because he is the great and ultimate mercy giver. Notice James began this section back in, uh, back in 2.1 with this quote. He says, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Now, why does he say it that way? Because no word, no word of Scripture is there for, for no reason, right? It's there for a reason. The word glorious is actually, is actually a bit odd in the Greek, and it's, so it's, it makes it difficult to translate. So if you're following along in different translations, you're probably saying, that's not the way mine has it. That's not the way mine has it. There's a reason for it. It's super hard to translate. So I am not about to give you a better translation because I can't. Uh, because it's just really hard to translate. But, but one, thing, one thing that is evident, even if we don't know how to translate it for sure, that word glory there receives emphasis. The way James handled it, it receives emphasis in the text. He is wanting to highlight that word glory for us. And there's a reason why. It's because everything that we've been looking at Showing mercy to others, not, not showing discrimination. All of that flows out of Christ and his glory. Glory is important because the radical mercy and love that James is calling for comes out of an all-consuming, riveted, overwhelming passion for Christ's glory. This, this is the means and the motivation for living a life of mercy-giving, Right? As we are overcome with his glory, we cannot help but to show that same kind of mercy that characterizes our Lord. He is beautiful, and so we want to act beautifully. He is benevolent, so we want to act with benevolence. He is good, so we want to show goodness to others. And it is only through his presence in our lives, it's only through his presence and through our abiding in that glory that we were able to be that sort of mercy giver to others. It is only through him and through, through sitting in his presence, through being in awe of him. It is only through him that we are able to do this. Because otherwise, otherwise, what we are being called to in this passage is completely contrary to our nature and to who I am. So it is only through him. So then where, where does that leave us this morning? We've already seen in James that if we break one portion of the law, we have broken the entirety of it. And the breaking of the entirety of the law 
which we have done, leads to condemnation. What is our hope then? What is our hope? There is one, though, isn't there? There is one who has not broken any law. There is one who has maintained the entirety of the law, who fulfilled it perfectly. There is one. And as we yoke ourselves to that one, to Jesus Christ, as we trust in him, in his death and in his resurrection, because he paid the penalty, because he took the condemnation upon himself that we deserved, because he took it upon himself, we can know freedom in him as we put our trust, as we put our confidence, as we throw ourselves at his feet to do what we never could and never would have wanted to. As we are united to him, we can have confidence of our vindication at the judgment. We are liberated from the condemnation that we rightly deserve and free to pursue a life in the spirit of mercy giving. Mercy giving. If you don't know Christ this morning, if you don't know Christ, I encourage you to take that step this morning to put your trust, to throw yourself at his feet. He has paid the price. He has done it all. Put your trust in him. If you do know Christ then this morning, what does a mercy-giving lifestyle look like? What is a mercy-giving lifestyle? These are just three thoughts as I've prayed and wrestled through this passage. Um, these don't come immediately. These don't come out of the passage. Again, these are just my thoughts. They're not inerrant. But three things as I was thinking through it. I would say the first thing is be intentional. Be intentional. As I said, as I said earlier, mercy and giving comes out of our relationship with Christ. So it has to begin. It has to begin with prayerfully being in his presence. Prayerfully being in his presence. And as we're in his presence, we make ourselves aware of what is going on in our community. Where, where does mercy need to be extended in our community? How can we better minister to the others around us? How can we meet the physical, tangible needs that, are, that surround us every day? So we are in his presence, functioning intentionally. The second thing, investing. We are called to invest in the lives of others. We are called to invest in their lives. We are called to go out and to be involved. We are called to, 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 to know people, to develop relationships, to, to take interest in the things that they're interested in, to intentionally seek to help them and to live a life with them. Number three, inviting. It's not just about going out, but it's actually about inviting them back into our lives as well. Inviting them in to live life with us. This is, this is radical this is radical um, uh, mercy giving. This is sacrificial. This is what we see the Good Samaritan doing. He was sacrificial with what he had to benefit those around him. You can tell a lot about a person's real view of grace by who they invite to their dinner table at the end of the day, right? Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment, discrimination, partiality. Let us then be mercy givers who are so overwhelmed by Christ's glory, who are so overwhelmed by the beauty of our Savior that we are able and empowered to extend mercy to those around us and to cut off the discrimination that's in our hearts. Let's pray. Dear Father, Lord, I thank you so much for your word.
God, I pray that we would be this sort, Lord, the sort that are, that are seeking to see by the power of your spirit, discrimination choked out in our own lives, Father, and that we would be those who are extending the hand of mercy to others. Lord, I pray that we would be intentional and thoughtful and prayerful, Father, as we seek to live a sacrificial life of mercy giving. Father, again, I just thank you so much for your word. We pray this through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. Our uh, our benediction this morning comes out of this passage. It's short, but it's so to the point. I loved it as as I prayed through the passage this week. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Go in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and be mercy givers this week. Have a good day. I've hidden it.